I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16 as we delve into verse 19 through 31. We complete the 16th chapter. Now there was a rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. And besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that we may, he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things? But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Well, then I beg you, Father, you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that, they may be, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment." But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. So he said, No, Father, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Father, thank you for this word. It's not a word that we relish to hear because we, we see that there is a place for believers and there is a place for unbelievers. And Lord, we like to think of you as a God that is loving and not a God of judgment. Lord, we just pray that your Holy Spirit may open our ears and our eyes, that we may see and hear as clearly as we possibly can the truth that you have for us today. And we pray this in your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. There was a man on an ocean liner who was getting close to the railing and looking over into the water, and while he was doing that, he was tossing something in his hand and catching it. And an onlooker came to him and said, What in the world is that that you're tossing? He said, Well, this is a diamond necklace, the most valuable thing that I have in this world. And the onlooker said, Well, aren't you afraid that you're going to lose it over the edge? Ah, he says, I've been doing this for a half hour. Says, I haven't missed it yet. 
Well, the onlooker said, there may come a time where it could be the last one. And he kept tossing and all of a sudden, ah! It's gone! It's lost! <laughs> My precious jewel! Well, you may think that's not a real story. And it isn't. (laughs) But you know, it is true about people who are living. Many people, you see, are on the ocean of eternity. And they are on the vessel of life. And that diamond is their soul. And if they do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, they're taking a great risk that every day may be their last day in this world. And if they die without him, where will they be? In Hades, eternally lost. Question. How can people be so careless about their eternal destiny? One answer is that they get so caught up in the good things of this life that they neglect thinking about what is to come. Oh, that's, you know, I'm young. I got lots of life ahead of me. I don't have to think about that now. I'll have plenty of time later. The great deceiver Satan gets them focused on living life here and now. But every once in a while, you know, there's a Catastrophe that happens, like the hurricanes that we saw this past year in this country, the fires in California, the floods, the mudslides, and each one of these events took precious lives. And when that hits families, they may think about death for the moment, but Then they go back to living life on its daily daily basis. A lot of people think, well, you know, I'm basically good. God is a loving God. He wouldn't condemn anybody like me that is this good to hell. And they put it out of their minds until they go on living life very casually. Well, Jesus directed the parable of the rich man and Lazarus to the Pharisees. They were the ones who thought that they would get into heaven because they were good people. They were the religious leaders. They were the ones who were in the temple whenever the doors were opened. They were the ones who studied the law and the prophets, and they could recite sections of it from memory. They participated in all the annual feasts and the, and the uh, days of the Jewish faith. They gave 10% or, or even more to the temple. They even called Abraham their father. But the religion was outward. They did what they did in order to impress others. But you see, God is not impressed because their hearts were full of pride and hypocrisy. They would have protested that they kept the law, but they were not concerned about the inner 
righteousness before God. And like the rich man in the parable, they were living the good life. They were assuming that they would go to heaven. But their love of money had blinded them to God's perspective. And so they were in a very rude awakening if they didn't repent and take heed to the true message of the law and the prophets before they came to the end of their life. And as far as we know, the rich man in the parable was not guilty of any gross sin. His fault was in living for himself and for this life only. He had no view of eternity. His sin was not in having money because Abraham, a very wealthy man, where was he? In heaven. But he failed to lay up treasures in heaven even though the opportunity to do so literally lie at his door every single day. When he had walked out his front door, there was the beggar. There was Lazarus. His faith was mere profession. It didn't result in obedience. And so the message for us this morning is, since present choices determine eternal destiny, we must repent and believe in God's word and not be deceived by outward appearances. Those are the three lessons that we need to learn this morning. The first lesson is this. There are two and only two destinies. Heaven and hell. There are no other. Jesus uh, pictures the parable in the common Jewish symbolism as a messianic banquet. We read in Luke chapter 13 verses 28 and 29 these words. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the, in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. They will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And at the banquet in that culture, the guests would recline at the table, not sit up at the table like we do in a manner that they would lean back upon the breast of the person nearest to them so that they could have intimate conversation. Lazarus is pictured at the banquet next to Abraham, who is the father of the faith, and enjoying the rest and comfort and fellowship. And he was delivered from the trials that he faced in this life. Now, while we won't be eating perpetually throughout eternity, though that may be heaven for some, that is the picture here to show us that it, it will be a place of eternal rest and, and enjoyment. And whatever heaven is like, you can be sure it's not going to be boring. You're not going to be sitting in a cloud strumming on a harp. That would be boring. But God, through the Apostle Paul, says in 1 Corinthians 6, 3, we will be judging angels. That, that could be exciting. 
And while we don't know all that God has prepared for those who love him, we do know that he will give us meaningful and fulfilling activity. I believe God has given us the most enjoyable activities on this earth as a foretaste of what is yet to come. Cindy and Mike just picture what your trip to Mexico was like. That's just a foretaste of what is to come in eternity. We also know from Revelations 21, verses 3 and 4, that God himself will dwell among us and that there will be no more mourning or crying or pain. Friends, if you are experiencing any one of those at this moment, know with a certainty that in eternity with Jesus, there will be no more. Won't that be a relief? So heaven will be infinitely better than the best place that you can ever imagine in this world. But the Bible goes on to say, and especially Jesus, makes it very plain that there is also a place of torment called hell. And here Jesus uses the Greek word Hades. And scholars are debating whether Hades and the Hebrew Sheol is the abode of all the dead with one compartment for the the righteous and another compartment for the wicked. Well, we can't be dogmatic about such specifics, but we can say with certainty that hell is a real place, just like heaven is a real place. You know, Jesus said in John 14, verse uh, 1, I go to prepare a place for you, and when it is ready... I'm going to come and receive you unto myself so that where I am, you will be also. That is reality. That is a place. But um, he also uh, cites the fact that in, in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24, that uh, hell is a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and it will be a place where worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. Just picture for a moment maggots crawling in and out of your nose, your eyeballs, your ears, uh, It's gross, isn't it? But just picture, this is a place where the worm never dies. They constantly keep gnawing. And the fire is never put out. And that's why Jesus says, you know, it would be better for you if you had a millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the depth of the sea rather than coming into that unquenchable fire. But if so, they are most frightening symbols to warn us that hell is a place of awful torment. Now, this is not a pleasant subject to be addressing, because we don't like to hear that kind of 
destiny that could be awaiting us unless we are believers in Jesus Christ. The rich man in the parable says, you know, I am in agony, we read in verse 24. And if it were a fun place, wouldn't you think that he would want his brothers to come and join him? But what does he say? Abraham, send Lazarus down to warn them so they don't come here where I am. The doctrine of eternal punishment in hell is not pleasant, but friend, you cannot accept Jesus Christ and reject hell because Jesus speaks very forcefully about it. R.C. Sproul wrote these words, He said, the fact is, however, that virtually every statement in the Bible concerning hell comes from the lips of Jesus Christ. We cannot take Jesus seriously without also taking seriously what he said regarding eternal punishment. There is very little about hell in the Old Testament and very little in the epistles. It is almost as if God decided that a teaching this frightening would not be received from any lesser authority than that of his only son. Unquote. So there are three views that we must reject. The first is universalism. That is the view which says everybody is going to be saved. It makes no difference what you believe. And friends, if you don't think that there are churches that are teaching this, Just take a look. Listen. The universalist says, a good loving God, he wouldn't condemn anybody to hell. There is some good in even the worst of us. God will take that into account so that no one will be condemned. But the universalist underestimates both the awfulness of our human heart and the holiness of God. The rich man in this parable is not an evil man in human terms. He wasn't a mass murderer. He wasn't a Charles Manson. He wasn't a sex offender. He wasn't deliberately hurting people. He was just living life for himself, oblivious to the man who lay at his gate. And yet, where is he in the place of torment? Jesus did not teach that everyone let alone everyone who isn't terribly evil, would necessarily be in heaven. So we must reject universalism. The second popular view we must reject is annihilationism. This is the view that God is going to destroy the unrepentant sinner so he ceases to exist, period. In other words, the soul is not immortal Perhaps God will punish a person for a time, but he won't suffer eternally. God will simply annihilate that person's soul, and this also is being taught in some churches today. Frankly, the idea sounds humane and appealing, but you cannot dodge what Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 46, where he uses the same word eternal in the same verse 
to refer to eternal punishment and eternal life. This is what he says. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, friends, if life is eternal, isn't punishment also eternal? And then just a few, uh, in, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, it states that the devil, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, there you have the satanic trinity, will be cast into the lake of fire where they will be tormented day and night for how long? Forever. How long is that? Eternity. Yeah, there is no end. And then just a few verses later, in that same chapter, in verse 15, it states that all whose names are not found written in the book of life are also thrown into the lake of fire. Day and night, forever and ever. Now the question is, how do you get your name into the Lamb's book of life? Very simple. Say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I am a sinner. I am standing in the need of your grace and your mercy. And we sang about it so powerfully this morning. The moment that a person accepts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the name is written in the book of life. But if one has never accepted Christ and one dies without Christ, then there's only one other place, and that's eternal damnation. The third popular view that we must refute is the doctrine of purgatory. Now, both the Roman Catholic and the Orthodox Church teach that whenever a believer dies, unless he has attained the state of moral perfection in this life, He goes to an intermediate place where he suffers until all sin has been purged away. Now, the sufferings may vary according to the guilt and and impenitence of of the sinner. But through gifts and services to the church, or prayers on behalf of the deceased, or masses provided by the friends of of loved ones, they can all serve to shorten the amount of time that one spends in purgatory. Now, if anyone was a candidate for purgatory, it was certainly the rich man. As I said, he was not a bad man. He called Abraham his father. He showed his devotion to the Jewish faith. He had a concern for his five brothers' eternal destiny. But he wasn't in purgatory with a chance to get into heaven after he had suffered a while. He was in hell. And there is a great chasm that's fixed. And you try to jump across that chasm flat-footed, how far would you get? What chance would you have? The doctrine of purgatory is not taught in Scripture. It is based on the apocryphal book, 2 Maccabees, chapter 12, verses 39 to 45. If you're interested, you can Google that and find out what purgatory really is about. 
But purgatory undermines the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. It adds human works to Christ's finished work on the cross. So while it is hard to a hard doctrine to understand, both intellectually and emotionally, we cannot believe in Jesus and the Bible and at the same time reject the doctrine of hell. There's only two destinies, and every single one of us is heading for one or the other. The second lesson is the basis for a person's eternal destiny is determined in this present life right now. Abraham says to the rich man in hell, there is this great chasm fixed between those in heaven and those in hell so that nobody can cross one way or the other. And not only does this mean that there is no purgatory, it also means that there is no second chance after death. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto men once to die, and after that comes the judgment. As someone has said, There are no unbelievers in hell. They only believe too late. In the parable, Lazarus died, and the angels carried him to heaven. The rich man died, and he was buried, and he was in hell in the flames. And since it is a parable designed to illustrate a very central truth. Jesus pictures the final outcome without spelling out the details about future resurrections of the body. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8, that for believers to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. There is no such a thing as soul sleep, while we wait for the resurrection of our bodies at his second coming. The souls of unbelievers go immediately at death unto the place of conscious torment to await the great white throne, and when their bodies will be raised and thrown into the lake of fire. So friends, it is not important just to believe in the resurrection. The important question is, which resurrection do you want? The resurrection that leads to life eternal or the resurrection that leads to damnation in hell? You see, everybody is going to be raised. Just look at the 20th chapter of the gospel or of uh, the book of Revelation. The 20th chapter in verses 11 to 15 uh, talks about that very thing. That if you're not found written in the Lamb's book of life, that is the final destiny. Now, before one dies, you can move from spiritual death to eternal life, but once you die, your eternal destiny is fixed. You either go to heaven or to hell, and there's no crossing over. Now, the basis of a fixed destiny is repentance and faith in the testimony of God's Word. A superficial reading of the story might lead you to conclude that a person who is rich and comfortable, he goes to heaven. While a person who is poor and miserable, or I mean, the person that's rich and comfortable goes to hell. And the person who is poor and miserable goes to heaven because that's where things are evened out. 
But that's not the way it works. That would contradict other scriptures, and even in the story itself. Abraham, as I said, a wealthy man, is in heaven. The rich man's problem is not that he was rich, but that he didn't repent of his sin. And he squandered his riches on himself, and began to use them as God would have him do to make friends for eternity. Now, the rich man knew that his brothers needed to do what he didn't do. Namely, to repent and be persuaded to believe the message of Moses and the prophets. The Apostle Paul summarized his preaching in Acts 20, verse 21, this way. Solemnly testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, here you have... Faith and repentance, which are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Repentance simply means a change of mind that results in turning the whole person from sin and to God. Saving faith is to trust the testimony that God is born concerning His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who offered Himself for our penalty. That's what we celebrate in the sacrament of Holy Communion. That is the victory that he has won for every believer to be free from sin. Now the rich man may have protested, well, how was I to know who I I was to take care of this poor man at the gate? Nobody told me. Well, God's word is sufficient witness to lead a person to repentance. And when the rich man asks Abraham to send Lazarus to warn his brothers, Abraham replies, they don't, if they have, they have everything that they need to repent. They have Moses and the prophets. But the rich man said, no, 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 that's not enough. They need something spectacular, something miraculous. Send them a man that's risen from the dead to preach to them. Then they will repent. But Abraham insists, Scripture is sufficient witness. And if they don't believe the Scripture, they won't believe if someone were to come back and say, look, I just came back from the dead. Let me tell you about it. And you would look at them and say, huh? Sometimes when we're witnessing, a person may say, well, if I could just see a miracle, I would believe. Well, friends, that's a smokescreen. The Bible bears witness of many miracles. First and foremost is the resurrection of Christ himself. He did come back from the dead. We don't believe him. There is sufficient evidence to believe the apostolic witness of the resurrection. If a person won't read and believe the Bible, then there's a deeper problem. And that's a moral problem. And repentance is a moral issue. It's not intellectual. The rich man had known what God's word says about concern for the poor and the needy, but he he chose to ignore it. And friends, we have that same choice. You can choose to ignore what the scripture is saying. You can choose to ignore what I'm saying. You can say, preacher, go on home. Don't believe the word you say. That's your choice. 
But if you choose to make that choice, be aware of the consequence. That doesn't change. So, the fact is, the rich man didn't want to inconvenience his comfortable lifestyle in order to care for the needs of Lazarus. And when you are sharing the gospel and a person raises an intellectual problem, that may not necessarily be the true problem. And one way that I deal with that is, I ask the person, are you saying that if I can provide an answer to your question, that you will believe and repent of your sin and turn to Christ? And the answer almost invariably is, well, there are other issues too. And so I said, well, great, make a, make a list of them. And if I can find reasonable answers, then will you become a Christian? Repentance isn't the result of having all our intellectual problems answered. Repentance and faith in Christ hinges upon the recognition that I am a sinner. And I am standing in the need of God's grace. And without Jesus, I am nothing. I have nothing to look forward to but eternal damnation. It's interesting that the rich man is left unnamed. He, you know, he's called dives in some translations, and that's a, a Latin word for the rich man. Lazarus is named, and his name means God has helped. And God certainly did help Lazarus because he had come to salvation. The point is, it's easy to be deceived by the present outward appearances into thinking that you or someone else is well off because you have a successful career. But if you are not rich before God, laying up eternal riches in heaven, then you are eternally bankrupt in the worst sense of the term. So don't be deceived in pursuing financial success in the process of losing your soul. Those who believe God's word live light in light of eternity as stewards who will give account to God using the wealth that God has provided in order to make friends for eternity. A Sunday school teacher told his class this story of the rich man and Lazarus and and then he said, now boys, which one would you like to be? Lazarus or the rich man? And one boy popped up, piped up and said, well, I'd like to be the rich man when I'm living and Lazarus when I die. <laughs> well, wouldn't we all? But of course, it doesn't work that way. You cannot live for selfish pleasures in this life and disobey God's word and expect to be with God in heaven when you die. But the good news is, when you repent of sin and live in obedience to Jesus Christ, you find both pleasure for time and eternity, no matter what your earthly circumstances may be. As Jesus said, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will find it. Two very different destinies lie before us this morning with great chasm fixed between. And I urge you, 
I urge you, choose following Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these clear and precise words that cut through the haze and the vagueness of much of our thinking. And help us set things aright in right perspective in order to bring life into focus again. What is life, Lord, if it is lived apart from a relationship with you? It's but an empty dream, a mere fantasy, filling our days and hours and months and years with nothing but emptiness and that which is illusion. So, Lord, we pray that we may, understanding this, give ourselves to you right now. That even now, young people and older ones alike may in this moment of clarity of thought give themselves to you to begin where they ought to begin with Moses and the prophets and the one of whom the prophets spoke, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this and we pray it in your name. Amen. Before I close with the benediction, just remind you that there will be elders at the front of the sanctuary this morning to pray with anyone who desires to have prayer. Let me close with a benediction from Psalm 121, verses 7 and 8. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. And all God's people said,